Hello, everybody, and welcome to our second Legal Minds on Markets podcast. I am once again joined by my colleague from the West Coast of the United States, Murray Roberts. And today we'll be talking again about SPACs, about the latest developments in the marketplace, and also focusing a little bit more on DSPACs and business combinations and the transactions that SPACs are now entering into involving offshore companies. Over to you, Murray. Thanks, George. And yeah, it's good to be talking to you again. So as you say, we did the last podcast on SPACs in in February, I think it was. And in that recording, we look back on the SPAC boom of 2020. And we actually did that broadcast from the middle of what was a really red hot SPAC IPO market in the first few weeks of of this year. And, And for the folks who either didn't catch the first podcast or, you know, it's been a while now since they might have listened, I wanted just to circle back to one of the points that we talked about in that podcast, which is the absolutely central role that the offshore jurisdictions of Cayman and BVI have played in the the resurgence of SPACs, which has been so important to the US capital markets in the last year and a bit. And it's a point that I keep coming back to, and I mention it a lot to to folks that I'm talking to, not just because I think it's a remarkable statistic in itself, but because, you know, it doesn't really get mentioned that much, I don't think, in the mainstream financial press. Um, And it's that more than a third of the SPACs that listed last year were formed either in Cayman or the BVI, predominantly in Cayman. So that point, I think, really frames the conversation. And it's why we're having this conversation today. And it's why you and I have been been so heavily involved in this space in recent months. And and that boom that we were talking about in February, it really continued and it, it actually accelerated through the rest of Q1. And the first three months of this year saw an unbelievable amount of capital raised, more capital raised by SPACs, in fact, than the whole of 2020. But then, you know, April came around. April was a different story. The number of new listings basically fell off a cliff. It fell extremely sharply. And there's been a lot of discussion amongst market participants and commentators around, you know, the range of factors that have maybe contributed to this slowdown. And people are pointing to a few things. First and foremost, really, is a statement that the SEC put out in in April that was looking at the treatment of the warrants that you normally find in a SPAC structure um, as liabilities rather than as equity instruments on a SPAC's balance sheet. And there's also been a focus on, you know, the large number of investment opportunities that are out there for the institutional investors who are normally the ones that participate in in the pipe financing element of SPAC deals. And this kind of oversupply of deals is is arguably making investors a bit more discriminating when they're looking at deals to invest in. So yeah, there's, there's been a bit of a slowdown. You know, people are, seem to be pausing, taking stock of the SEC's statement, figuring out what it means in terms of potentially restating SPAC's financials. Um, so yeah, a, a markedly different market to what we were seeing in in Q1. So, so George, I guess with that backdrop in mind, what's what's your take on the current state of things in the SPAC market? In terms of the IPO listing side of the market, I think I'm cautiously optimistic. I think most of the people that we talk to among the onshore firms, among the onshore service providers, tax advisors, accountancy firms, etc., what was happening in Q1 was probably unsustainable over the longer term as any period of really exponential growth always is. But I think there is a general consensus in the market that there is still plenty of legs in this as a structure and it's been around a long time. People are going to continue doing SPAC deals and we're actually expecting a sort of mini revival to start around June. I think we're probably going to be seeing less deals than than people saw maybe in February and March. But, you know, a continuation of 
consistent, higher quality deals is actually not a bad thing. And, you know, there was definitely some speculative elements around the edge of this. And it's important that that gets weeded out by the markets in the usual course of things. But what, what we are seeing and what hasn't really slowed down is a lot of interest in DSPAC transactions. There is obviously, as you've already alluded to, Murray, a tremendous amount of money raised in the first quarter of this year and in 2020. That money is sat around. Most of that money was raised on a two-year investment window. Sometimes it's a bit longer, sometimes it's a bit shorter, but generally around a two-year investment window. And so people now have to go back to their investors and either get an extension of the investment period or they have to go and spend the money. And we've been working on a number of those transactions at the moment. One of the ones we worked on, there was real pressure. They had an 18-month investment window. There was real pressure to get a deal signed up. Uh, They knew that they weren't going to be able to complete within the investment window, but they thought if they had a deal signed up, it would give them something that they could then go to the shareholders and get approval for an extension of the investment period. And they actually got that approval in the high 90s, which shows that it works as a strategy. So we're seeing a lot of people doing that. Uh, Obviously, the involvement of BVI and Cayman and predominantly Cayman vehicles means that we get involved in those kind of transactions as offshore council as well. And I can come back to this a little bit more detail later. It's probably worth talking about the fact that from the sell side, a SPAC is a pretty attractive thing to come and buy you. And so actually SPACs with their available capital and with their natural advantages are kind of pushing out a little bit other M&A buyers in the current market. But in any event, Murray, I think you had some further thoughts about how the SPAC market looks. So maybe I'll hand back over to you for that. Yeah, um, you know, one of the really interesting points you just made was this point about the, the sheer level of undeployed capital that's sitting within SPACs right now that are looking for a merger target and need to find one within the next sort of 12 to 24 months. And there was, a, there was a Goldman Sachs note that was published a few weeks ago that looked at, you know, the, the quantum of capital sitting in these vehicles. And, and they estimated there was about $129 billion of capital sitting in SPACs looking for a, for a merger target. And because, as we mentioned at the start of this recording, you know, about a third of the SPACs that listed last year were Cayman or BVI Incorporated, then it's, it's probably safe to say that there's, there's tens and tens of billions of dollars of capital sitting within Cayman and BVI vehicles now that are, that are looking for a merger target very soon. So yeah, as you say, as a result of that, I think it's a, a really good time to talk about the, the kind of DSPAC process and what that lo- looks like when the SPACs formed offshore. And again, just circling back briefly to a point that we talked about back in, in February on the first podcast, the use of an offshore jurisdiction for, for the SPACs formation is, is normally driven by factors that are driven by US tax council, by the US tax advisors, not offshore council like Carney's. But having said that, you know, generally, if the SPAC sponsors are foreseeing that a target based in the US is going to be acquired, typically a US vehicle is going to be used as a SPAC. But often if a non-US company is going to be targeted, then a Cayman or a BVI SPAC will be used. And when you have an offshore SPAC, it's, it's not normally the case that post-merger, the listed entity is going to remain domiciled in Cayman or BVI. We, we normally see one or two other things happen. The first one is if the Cayman SPAC proceeds as anticipated and it merges with a non-US operating company, in, in that situation, the business combination normally gets done by way of a Cayman statutory merger with the effect that the entity that's listed post-merger is going to be domiciled probably in the same jurisdiction that the underlying operating company is, is domiciled in. 
Um, and to give you know folks listening an example of, of that deal structure from the market, uh, a few months ago, Taboola, which is the Israeli targeted marketing platform, was acquired by Cayman SPAC. And that is the, the structure that was used there, a Cayman statutory merger with the post-merger entity being listed as an Israeli company. And that's all information that's publicly available in, in SEC filings. And the second type of situation we see is, is where the Cayman SPAC, and I say Cayman, it could just be, be BVI, but where the offshore SPAC actually ends up merging with a US operating company. And in that situation, what you often see is the Cayman SPAC domesticating to a US jurisdiction like Delaware as part of the merger transaction. And as a result of that, the public company that's, that's listed post-merger is a domestic US entity. And that structure is normally achieved by um, a deregistration or a, a continuation out of the Cayman Islands. And again, an example of that structure was the $4.8 billion acquisition of Open Door, the, the prop tech company based in San Francisco by Cayman SPAC. And, and again, that's all publicly out there in SEC filings. So George, I, I guess with that backdrop in mind, in terms of mm. the structures that we're seeing, mm. did you maybe want to go through some of the mechanics of Cayman's statutory merger process and maybe the continuation out process? First thing to note is that in addition to the tax drivers that you've mentioned, a key reason why many people use offshore SPACs is to get foreign private issuer status with their listing, which basically, and in brief, gives you a slightly lighter touch regulatory regime. Now, the requirements to be a foreign private issuer are slightly complex, but they go partly to where your management is and they go partly to where your shareholders are. And if you have above a certain threshold of US-based shareholders, you can't be a foreign private issuer regardless of where you are listed. So that is a key reason why many SPACs may actually decide that listing offshore isn't the right thing for them post-business combination. Because if, as you say, they are merging with a US operating company and the majority of their shareholders are US, they're not going to get the benefit of the foreign private issuer status. So it's easier to just accept the inevitable and run it as a US corporation. The process of continuing out of the Cayman Islands is relatively straightforward, just as it is from the BVI. It's marginally more complicated for a public company because of the requirement, obviously, to get approval from a large body of shareholders, but it can be done. It can be done relatively straightforward. Um, you will obviously need to get those approvals from your shareholders. You'll need to obtain any chargee consent, although that's relatively rare for a SPAC because there isn't typically any secured financing there. And you'll obviously need to tiptoe as well through the process at the other end with your host jurisdiction, let's say it's Delaware. So yeah, that can be done and that can be done relatively easily. Um, the, the structure that we've seen more often in the ones that we've worked on actually has been the offshore merger. And what we typically see is basically the target, if you like, establishing a merger sub that's incorporated in the offshore jurisdiction. And they would typically either stick that below the entity that is the principal holding company of the group already, 
or if they've decided that they're going to relist somewhere other than uh, somewhere other than the place where the company is currently incorporated or i should say somewhere other than where the spac is incorporated that they would put in an intermediate holding company that's incorporated in that other jurisdiction so we've seen a couple actually where people have put a luxembourg entity on top of the merger sub with the intention of relisting as a Luxembourg entity. So if you have, in this example, Luxembourg sat above new merger sub, what you then have is new merger sub merges with SPAC, with SPAC surviving. New parent co, which could be Lux or wherever else, then acquires through the merger all of the shares in the SPAC. All of the shareholders in the SPAC get spun up to become shareholders in the parent co. All of the existing shareholders in parent co retain their interests as well. And then parent co lists. And I think that's probably actually something that's more attractive to people than the continuation out process and the, what we're seeing in the majority of cases. The other way of structuring this, of course, would be very, very similar. But instead of listing parent co, what you would do is simply relist the combined SPAC. Merger sub would again merge with SPAC. SPAC would sit below parent co, but then you would basically issue to all of the existing shareholders in the historic target business shares in the SPAC. And then you would relist the SPAC so that the SPAC would remain listed in NASDAQ or the New York Stock Exchange and would sit there with a whole bunch of additional shareholders as well. So those are the two structures we've seen. Um, in either of those, you will need offshore counsel to walk you through the mechanical processes at that end. Uh, you'll need your offshore counsel to help you draft the various bits for inclusion in your registration statement that explain the relevant provisions of Cayman or BVI law that pertain to the company now. And if you're switching the jurisdiction as well, you'll need to do a bit of a comparison between the two jurisdictions to allow investors to understand how, as a shareholder in a Luxembourg company or a Delaware company, their rights will be different to what they thought they were subscribing for when they subscribed in for the SPAC originally. So we're seeing a lot of that sort of stuff and it's quite interesting. And I think as someone who is an M&A lawyer, if you really push me in a corner to say what I'm doing, I think the impact that SPACs are going to have on that particular industry over the next couple of years is just going to be absolutely fascinating. Thanks for that summary. I think it will be, be really helpful for you know US lawyers and US tax advisors who are listening and want to understand how offshore counsel's role you know fits into the whole process and how the offshore structuring piece works. So that's super helpful. Yeah, as you say, I think it'd probably be, be good just to switch and have a look at some of the, the DSPAC transactions that, that we've been working on as a firm over the last few months. And a lot of these are in progress still. So as you say, you know, we can't really talk too much about specifics. Um, but generally speaking, the deals that are you know, extremely international in nature, they're involving a range of target types, a range of jurisdictions. So for instance, we've just done a DSPAC um, that involved a Cayman SPAC acquiring a Latin American healthcare company. We've seen a pipe financing transaction that involved the use of BVI entities in the financing structure. And that one was in connection actually with a US incorporated SPAC that was merging with an Israeli tech company at a pretty substantial valuation of about $1.4 billion, I think. And as you said a minute ago, you know, we've had a lot of conversations along with um, our Harney's colleagues in Luxembourg, because of course Harney's has an office in Luxembourg as well. 
where we've looked at LUX structures being used as part of the DSPAC process, particularly when European target businesses are, are being looked at with the aim that the, the LUX Co is then listed in the US um, post-merger. So yeah, as I say, it's a, it's a pretty broad range of, of deals and jurisdictions that we've been seeing, George. And would you say there are any general themes that, that are worth drawing from from those transactions or taking away from them? Any learning points or anything interesting to note? I think we're learning a lot all the time in this area because of its sheer newness. And I think people are really pushing the boundaries of what can be achieved using these vehicles now. And everybody at the moment is trying to follow the precedents and the precedents are exploding, but the number of precedents is also quite small on the DSPAC side because the number of DSPACs hasn't remotely caught up with the number of IPOs. And M&A transactions are by their nature a bit less commoditized than ECM transactions anyway. So in every deal, you're going to get different issues arise during your due diligence process. You're going to get different issues of legal mismatch that, that might arise and need to be worked through. I think the main thing that we're all learning is the importance of being incredibly flexible in this area and um, in, in the importance of open communication, in the importance of firms working together collaboratively. And one of the interesting things about the SPAC is it really is quite a collaborative transaction because at the end of the day, the shareholders of both companies are going to end up being shareholders in the same vehicle. So it shouldn't be seen as an antagonistic process. And I think that's really interesting. I think we're talking to people all around the world who are looking at these vehicles, um, not just in the US as well. I think it will be interesting over the next few months to see whether some of that talk from other jurisdictions slows down, given that the US seems to have slowed down a little bit. But anecdotally, it doesn't seem to have done. You know, we, there's still a lot of interest in places like China, Hong Kong, London in replicating this model and, and seeing if it will work for them. There's a lot of interest from sponsors in those places still in the US capital markets as well, and finding an easy way to access the US capital markets. And I don't think those pressures will go away, which is one of the reasons why I think the SPAC formula is, is a long way from dead. I think another finally and very timely development in the market that I saw that there is the first exchange traded fund that's specifically targeting DSPACs so there's clearly a, a view that there is some interest in the market in people acquiring shares in, in these companies that have been through this process and come back onto the market. So I think that's really, really interesting. Um, finally, there's also sort of first rumblings, perhaps, of uh, interest really from securities litigation firms and activist shareholders in, in really prodding some of these vehicles. And I think we can expect some more developments in that area. And there's already been a couple of cases in Delaware, although no litigation yet in the Cayman or the BVI on, on these subjects. And I think that's a theme that we'd maybe love to return to in another one of these podcasts. But for now, let me just say thank you very much, Murray. It has been a pleasure to talk. Thank you very much, everyone. We hope you'll join us again another time.